we got, we're going to move quick again like we did last week. It's, I'm excited. I've been, my wife's been getting the overflow of my study all week. And, um, so now you're going to get some of it. Uh, let's, let's pray before we get going. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. I thank you for these women and, and their love for you, their love for your word, and their passion to uh, live your word and be obedient and honor you. I pray that you would help us to understand your word this morning, that it, we would see your glory clearly, we would see your plan clearly, and that we would understand how even we can um, better trust in you and who you are. We give you this morning in your son's name. Amen. So I think, I think I saw most of you last week, but if, if we haven't met, um, my name is Dan Talcott. I am Katie's husband, and um, this is Isaiah. So open your Bible to Isaiah chapter, we're going to start in chapter 13, but let's remember a little bit of our context. What's going on in Isaiah? We're in the time of the divided kingdom, right? We've got Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and uh, Isaiah was a prophet based in Jerusalem, primarily prophesying and speaking to Judah, right? Last week, we said there were four kings that Isaiah prophesied under. It started with Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king, did what was right in God's eyes. And his son Jotham was a good king, did what was right in God's eyes. Um, but it, it told us that, uh, Second Kings told us that they didn't remove the high places, and there was some spiritual decline going on in the country, even though they had a good king. And uh, we know that because Jotham's son Ahaz was one of the wickedest kings that uh, Judah ever had. So that's the time of Isaiah's prophesying. And then the fourth king that it mentioned was Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was another good king who brought some great reforms. We're going to look at some of what Hezekiah did later. Assyria was the major power. So we got Judah, or we got Israel and Judah, and then we had Assyria up, up in the north, right? And they kept coming down, fighting everybody. And we had Egypt as a major power from below. And last week we talked about how Ahaz trusted in Assyria, and he shouldn't have done that. And uh, those major powers come into play. What was the role of the prophet? The role of Isaiah was to uh, be a covenant enforcer. He's going to apply the covenant to what's going on, the economics, the social, the political, and the religious life of the nation. We said there were three major sections of Isaiah, right? We said the book of the king, the first 39 book, the first 39 chapters, book of the king, all about judgment. Then we said 40 through 55 was the book of the servant mostly about restoration. And then finally, 56 through 66, the anointed conqueror looking towards the future. So today our goal is to get from, last week we got through chapter 12. We're going to go from chapter 13 all the way through 39 and close out the book of the king and look at what it says. Our, the overall message of the book, what is trying to be communicated by God through Isaiah? And then we got this from Dr. Todd Bowen. He said that Israel must trust God because depending upon the foreign nations will only lead to exile. Israel's judgment, they deserve judgment, right? Israel's going to be judged, but that doesn't invalidate the covenant promises, for the Lord will raise up a righteous individual, a seed, to suffer for the sins of the people in order that he may establish a kingdom of lasting peace with them. Okay? That's the, that's the main purpose. Last week we saw that it, Judah was guilty, right? We looked at some of the reasons that Judah was guilty. We looked at Isaiah's call and commission. Remember we said that when the experience of Isaiah becomes the experience of the nation, then they would be ready to serve. And that experience was the beholding the glory of God, right? And responding rightly. That was that experience. And then we looked at 
um, we looked at some prophecies of the king, the king to come. There's going to be a child who's divine and who's human, who's going to reign in perfect righteousness, right? Everybody's with me? Yes. Good. Here we go. Today, the, the next section, chapters 13 through 39. Also, three convenient sections for us this morning. Isn't that nice? So 13 through 33, the first part, it's all about the nations are going to be judged. And that's what we're going to look at first. The nations are judged. And in the, the point of these is back to our main message, right? That Yahweh's people shouldn't trust the nations. Yahweh's people should trust in God. And that is exactly what um, this section is about. 13 through 23, it's all about judgment on the nations. But the point is going to be God's going to judge the nations, so you, you shouldn't be trusting in them. Uh, there's Bab- Babylon in, thir- in chapters 13 and 14, Assyria in chapter 14, Philistia in chapter 14, Moab in 15 and 16, Damascus, Cush, Egypt, Babylon again, Arabia, Jerusalem, and Tyre and Sidon. So he goes through each of these sections, and you, you can kind of flip through and you'll see it. Turn to chapter 19. We're going to see a, uh, a sample, if you will. What, what is the, the type of judgment that's coming, and what, why is it coming in this section? chapter 19. And I'm just going to read the first, the first verse to kind of give us a framework. It says, an oracle concerning Egypt, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight against each other, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom, and the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confuse their counsel. And they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and necromancers. And I will give them over to the Egyptians in the hand of, the, of a hard master. And a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. Okay. Who is the one doing the acting in this? Verse 1 says, the Lord is rising. Verse 2, I will stir up the Egyptians. Right? And verse 3, I will confound their counsel. Verse 4, I will give them over to the Egyptians. Verse 4, declares the Lord God. Over and over again in this whole section, you're going to see... God is the one doing the judging, right? It's making that point. And uh, I want us to remember that God is totally sovereign over the nations, right? And, and what that means is he's in perfect and total control. He, the, these nations, both in Judah's day and in today, are entirely under uh, his direction, if you will. I want our view of God to be informed by his sovereignty, Furthermore, Israel shouldn't trust these nations. Th- God is going to be punishing them, right? So, and, and judging them. So why would you, as Judah, why would you turn to nations that God's judging? You're, you've got the God who's going to be doing the judging. You've got the God who's sovereign and in control. Why aren't you trusting in him? That's the, that's the main point that you would see in reading these. Okay, let's keep reading in chapter 19, because there's another um, emphasis in this section, and I don't want to miss it. Chapter 19, scroll down to verse 20. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord. And he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Down in verse 24. In that day, Israel will be a third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. 
whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work on my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Okay, stop for a second. This is like totally opposite of the judgment, right? This is, this is unique. We've been talking about this king that's going to reign, but why, uh, why does it mention that Egypt is going to be blessed and that the Lord will actually make himself known to the Egyptians? And, and I would say to you that it's because, back to our Abrahamic covenant, right? The people of Israel were going to be a blessing to the world. And that part of God's original plan was always to include the nations in his plan, right? He, he loves the nations, and he will uh, bring them to repentance, and, and, and a remnant of them, if you will, just like a remnant of Judah. There will be people of all nations, tongues and tribes. We see that in Revelation, right? A part of his salvation. So God has always planned to be a blessing to the world and bring nations to salvation. That is a, 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 also a picture of what's going on in these. So we saw God is sovereign. Israel shouldn't trust these, trust these nations, and God has a plan even to bless these nations, okay? That is the picture of 13 through 23. We're moving fast. Okay, what the next section, 24 through 35, <coughs> excuse me, 24 through 35 is, uh, the main point is redemption of Israel through world judgment. Redemption of Israel through world judgment, okay? And uh, it's, it's weaving... Again, we saw this last week, weaving judgment with hope together, back and forth. But before, we had it specific for nations, and these, this nation is going to be judged in this way. This nation is going to be judged in this way. 24 through 35, redemption of Israel through world judgment, it's a, it's a lot broader, okay? It's the whole world is going to be judged, and the whole world is going to, and, and God is going to res- bring restoration to the whole world. Why, b- before I, we look at an example of this and what's going on, I was trying to think, why does God keep telling us about judgment? Why does he keep mentioning, why are we, why is he spending all this time about judgment? And a, a couple of reminders would be, and we know this from our study, right, is sin must be judged, right? There's no sin that's not going to be judged. Every single sin, every single sinner, there's going to be judgment. And, and it's very vivid from Isaiah. Um, and I think it's a reminder that he's going to fulfill all he said, too. Right? So Judah is a part of who's going to be judged. Israel's going to be judged. And God's told them that they would be. Obedience brought blessings, and disobedience brings curses. And he's going to be faithful to exactly what he told them he would do. Okay. Let's, get a, let, let's look at some of the judgment. Turn to chapter 24. Is that where I said to turn? Turn to 24. We're going to see the same things we just saw. God is sovereign. Israel doesn't need to trust the nations. And God has a plan to bring blessing. Verse 5, why is judgment coming? Actually, we'll start in verse 4. The earth mourns. This is chapter 24. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Okay, so why is judgment coming? Well, Somebody tell me, why is judgment coming? Because they broke the covenant, right? They're being disobedient, right? They, they have transgressed God's laws. And that is why judgment is going to come. Same as what we said last week, right? Turn to chapter 29. We're going to look at some more of it. Chapter 29, verse 13. Chapter 29, 13 says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth 
and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people and wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Okay, so the first part of that says, they draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That sounds like last week too, doesn't it? We said uh, ritualistic religiosity. And what, what does that mean? That means they're doing um, engagement with religious things. They're doing practices. They're even saying the things. They're showing up to church or whatever, right? But their hearts were not in it. Their hearts were not, were, and it was evident because they were oppressing the poor. And they were, they were um, not obeying God's laws in their hearts. And it was evident in the, in the country, right? They're worshiping other idols. They weren't really following him. But they had tacked on and continued to do those religious practices. Isaiah 29, 16. It says, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. What is that? That's their pride again. We saw this last week. It's the same message, right? And it's the same message that we see all of Scripture. It's because of their pride, judgment is coming. You can't say to the to the the potter. The clay doesn't talk to the potter that way. Okay. We're looking at this judgment. Judgment is coming. We saw why it's coming. Let's look at how it's coming. Verse chapter 34. At the end of this section, th- chapter 34 and 35 are the end of this section. Chapter 34 is all about judgment, and chapter 35 is all about hope. And they kind of are a summary, if you will, of almost everything that's come before. Here's the, here's the summary. And we're going to read verses 8 through 10 of chapter 34. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Eden shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. And then it goes to talk about how there'll be some animals possess it, but the people aren't possessing it. So the picture, what's the picture there? This imagery, it's like burning, right? Fire. The, there's the, this judgment is going to come with fire. And immediately that makes me think of repeated times the New Testament talks about, you, you got Second Peter, you got Revelation talking about the, the earth is going to be destroyed by fire. Um, they're just, you know, they, they know that because they've read Isaiah and they know Isaiah, that fire's, you know, Destruction is coming by fire. God is making the point that he is totally sovereign. He is totally in control. And Judah and my people, you should trust me. You should trust me. I've got a plan for you. I've even got a plan for the nations. I'm going to bring blessing and restoration. But don't, don't trust these nations. Okay. That's the judgment part of 24 through 35. Let's look at the hope part. What is he? Let, let's, I'm, I'm guessing he's going to say the same thing, right? Sovereignty and uh, don't trust the nations in the hope. So let's look at some of the hope pieces of this. Go back, go back to chapter 26. We studied this, or you guys studied this in the lesson. So I'm trying not to go too deep in the stuff you guys have already, already know. But in 26, I think the high point of this is chapter 12, or verse 12. 26, verse 12. And he says, uh, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. You have done for us all our works. See, the, 
the point is, is they couldn't do it on their own, right? Judgment was coming. God is totally sovereign over the judgment, but God is totally sovereign over the restoration too. They weren't going to be their own righteousness. They weren't going to be okay before God on their own. God was going to be the one who was going to accomplish it. And I think that's what that verse is saying. Um, 27 is a beautiful picture of the vineyard. We talked about the vineyard last week. God had given the vineyard and his people everything that he could possibly, they could possibly need to flourish, Right? But there was no good fruit. There was only wild grapes, and it didn't produce any good fruit, right? But in, verse, in chapter 27, we get a picture. Oh, no. This new Israel, this new uh, people, they're going to blossom, and, and there's going to be f- whole—it says in verse 6, will fill the whole world with fruit. So it's a totally opposite picture of the vineyard we saw before. I love it. Verse 32, or chapter 32, you guys looked at that. A king is going to come. That's a part of this. So let's look at how the— how is this kingdom described? What does this kingdom look like? You're, go back, chapter 25. What does this kingdom look like? Chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, and we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Okay, so it's, there's a future day when God's going to do this, right? We see the picture. in in it reminds me, again, of like this wedding feast, right? It's this feast, um, a joyous occasion. I think of it as the, the wedding feast of the Lamb and a picture of the kingdom. And what does he say about their tears? It says that he's going to wipe away tears from their faces. He, Isaiah, or God, God could have said, I, I'm just going to take away all sorrow, right? But he gives us this picture. You know what it's like to have a little child. You're going to wipe away their tear and take care of them. I think back to that, so- that song, oh, Worship the King and the Tender Mercies. God's mercies are tender. He cares, and it, he cares like, a, like he's going to go to your face and touch your face and wipe away your tears. And that's what it's going to be one day. No more tears from the tender God who loves us. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 9 describes the joy, right? They waited, and there was joy and gladness. Now, and I, I read these, and... The tears are going to be wiped away, but the tears aren't going to be wiped away for everybody. The, um, I, I got a quote to, that talks about this from Dr. Smith, and he says, No, the, the complete removal of death will be central to the establishment of God's reign. For death is the punishment the enemies of God justly deserve because of sin. We've been talking about that. Once the enemies of God in heaven and earth are vanquished, no one will deserve to die. The mystery of God's action is not fully revealed in this text, but the end of death must also imply the end of sin and the removal of sinful people from the earth. So sin's gonna, that's why death can be gone, because sin's gonna be gone, right? Um, but we're, but we're not, uh, not everybody is gonna, is gonna have that experience. I went to a funeral this last Monday. I'm gonna try not to cry, but uh, it was a, a Catholic funeral, and I, I don't know if I've ever been to a Catholic funeral before, and they, uh, 
it was very, actually most of what they said was, was right on, right? 80% of everything they said was exactly what we would say and we would believe. Even the songs, they, they sing Amazing Grace and How Great Thou Art. And they read these verses right here, 6 through 8 from chapter 25. And they're, and they're applying it to them and all these people. And there were probably 200 people there. And, and the priest is waving his holy water on the casket and, and shaking this uh, burning incense. And um, it just made me think that th- this is not the experience of everybody. And it made me think back to that r- ritualistic religiosity. What are, what are these people, what am I counting for as my salvation? What, what am I relying on? Is it my... Is it the same thing that Abraham relied on, his faith? How was Abraham counted as righteous? He was declared righteous because of his faith and because he believed, not because of anything he did. And that's true for the people that were sitting in that funeral on Monday. It's true for you. It's true for me. What are we relying on for our salvation? What are you relying on for your, your righteousness, for, for you to just be okay with God? Is it, is it the good things that we're doing? Is it, is it the holy water? Um, is, it, is it faith and faith in the the Son of God who took away that sin and who's going to come again. So I, I was looking at back at a little handout that um, my old pastor did, and he talked about evidences that prove salvation and evidences that, that don't necessarily prove or disprove salvation. So I was, was looking at, look, you can have all the knowledge or the religious involvement you want. You can even have the conviction of sin, and that doesn't necessarily show or prove anything. Um, but proof of authentic faith would be true love for God, true repentance, obedient living, humility and hunger for God's word, a transformation of life. Hopefully you see that in your own life and, and um, I know I see that in your lives because I've been impacted by you here at Fisher Hill. So just a reminder. Okay, let's keep going. I get caught up. Chapter 35, let's look, let's look at Isaiah's summary of the hope in chapter 35. Let's look at uh, verse 5. What is, what is this kingdom going to look like? What is this restoration going to look like? Verse 5 says of chapter 35, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground springs of water, in the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Okay, so we see a time where the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame man walks. And you'll remember with me, uh, it, it brings to mind, right, Jesus. And what did John, do you remember what John the Baptist's disciples said to Jesus? They said, hey, are you really the Messiah who's coming? Are, are you the one? And Jesus, he didn't say, yes, I'm the Messiah, right? He said, Go tell John that the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame man walks. Here he was saying on the Messiah, I, I, I am the king that's coming. This is the kingdom. I, I, I am the right, the right king. And it's, the, we don't see this full force, right? Sin is not gone yet. There is still pain and suffering today. One day it's going to be entirely. The blind will see and the lame will all hear. It will be gone. All the sin will be gone forever. Love that. Keep, let's keep reading. Verse 10. Or no, verse, uh, verse 8, sorry. We've got to finish here. And uh, there'll be a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. 
they shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So what are the people called? What are the people who are there called? They're called, in verse 9, the redeemed, and in verse 10, the ransomed. It doesn't tell us exactly the specifics of how they're called the redeemed and the ransomed, but we know they're redeemed and ransomed. And then again, the imagery of the joy, gladness, joy, joy, no more sorrow, no more sighing. Man, I feel like I sigh all the time. No more sighing. Uh, so this language, and, and another thing I would say is that language, and we read some of it earlier, the water is breaking forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The language speaks of a renewed earth. I don't know if any of you all have read Randy Alcorn's book, called heaven. I would highly recommend it if you haven't. It really helped me think about what is the future going to look like, and is it, is it just going to be us, heaven's like us floating in the, in the clouds? What is it going to be like? And, uh, and it's going to be a lot like what we know today, only perfect, right? It's going to be a renewed earth, I believe, and I believe that this supports that. Okay, so what do we learn from this? Okay, we learn that God is sovereign, God is in total control. And I think sometimes it's, it, it can be easy for us to say, yep, I know God's in control, but. And I think sometimes we need to say, instead of saying, but this or that, or this thing is hard or whatever, one thing that I learned from Jerry Bridges' Trusting God book is we always think of God as sovereign, but let's make sure we think of God as wise and God as good as well. Some, so he, he's, he's showing his wisdom and his, and his goodness in this. He is perfectly just. And we can rely on him to trust him because we know he's sovereign, and we know he's wise, and we know he's good. Okay, um, we also said don't trust the nations. We're going to trust God. God has obviously has a plan for blessing, okay? I, I thought of one thing, and that's how it, re, it, it regards evangelism. You know, the, there's judgment, and there's hope. There's like only two options here, right? There's only two options. Everybody's going to fall under, in one sense, everybody's going to fall under one of these two options. There's judgment and there's hope. There's a sense in chapter 34, it doesn't say this explicitly, but the judgment's coming and, and they're paying the penalty for their own sin in chapter 34. Chapter 35, they're, they're redeemed and ransomed. They didn't, they're not, they didn't have to pay for their own sin, right? I think we also, I want to talk about the nature of trust. I've said it last week, I'm saying it again this week. Um, the nation of Israel was supposed to trust God and they were uh, not to trust in the nations or anything else. And so what does it mean to trust? What does it mean for you and I to trust? And I wrote down some thoughts. So and, uh, uh, six times so far in the book of Isaiah, it's, talked, it's mentioned waiting. And it's going to do it five more times in the rest of the book. Jesus talks about waiting. Paul talks about waiting well. And and so I think we must have a settled mind that God will be faithful to his promises. What does it look like to wait? I think it looks like having a settled mind and heart that God is going to be faithful to his promises. So we need to wait, be people who wait well. Israel needed to be people who waited well. I think that's how we trust. I think also trust is being active in righteousness. Some of you all were here with me this last, this last Saturday. Man, time's flying, right? It was this last Saturday with the biblical counseling training. Anybody, anybody there? Yeah, a couple people? I thought of, you know, it, it's over and over again looking at the sins of the people. They're rejecting the covenant. They're disobedient. They're prideful. They're doing ritualistic religiosity. And our biblical counseling training talked about how 
what true, true repentance is. We talked about how do we get biblical change. And I think if we're going to be people who trust the Lord, if Judah want to be people who trust the Lord, we have to be people who, who see our sin and then change. We have to be people who practice the righteousness, just like we talked about last week. It, it needs to be more than head knowledge. Along with that, true trust, I believe, rejects other idols. Right? They were supposed to not trust in the nations. They were supposed to not have idols. And uh, just a reminder to us, uh, what are we tempted to find our security in? What are you finding your security in today? What am I finding my security in today? Is it the money in the bank account? Is it health? Is it job? Is it family relationships? I don't know. But uh, I know if it's not, that trust isn't in the sovereignty and the wisdom and the goodness of God. We need to repent of it. It's not something to just, you know, not think about it. It's, it's something to repent of and change. And those who wait, those, those who wait and who trust, will find what? Pure and lasting joy. Okay, let's get to our final section here. So we looked at God's judging the, of the nations, and we looked at kind of his worldwide judgment in bringing redemption to Israel. Next, chapters 36 through 39. If you look in your Bible, it, it even looks differently. It, th- it's a narrative section. Up to this point, it's basically been poetry. And I really wish I knew Hebrew well, because then I could enjoy the poetry, because you and I don't really, it doesn't rhyme, or, you know, it doesn't have the meter that it should have, but it does in the Hebrew. And then we get to this narrative, and the narrative in 36 to 39 is all about King Hezekiah. And it shows a lived-out example of 1 through 35, okay? Lived-out example of 1 through 35, is has we saw Ahaz in chapter what was that chapter seven? He didn't he trusted in Assyria and did not trust the Lord. What is King Hezekiah going to do? And I'm going to I'm going to tell you the story briefly, and we'll look at a little piece of it. But um, Isaiah 36, Sennacherib. Sennacherib's the king of Assyria. Sennacherib has come down from Assyria. He's conquered multiple cities of Judah, and and he sends his messenger to uh, Jerusalem to mock and to ridicule Hezekiah and the people. And, and they taunt him. And so what does Hezekiah do? Hezekiah in verse 37, or in chapter, excuse me, chapter 37, he seeks Isaiah's help and he prays. That is his response. And immediately, God sends an answer. At the end of, ver- end, end of chapter 37, verse 35, uh, Hezekiah's already prayed, and this is the end end of his response. God says, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for sake, sake of my servant David. That's why he's doing it. It's not necessarily for Hezekiah, but it's for his own sake and the sake of David. And then what happened in chapter, in verse 36, and the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. So picture it with me for a second. Have any of you been to Israel? Has anybody been to Israel? Okay, you have. So everybody else, you've got to start saving up so you can go to Israel one day. Fisherville, well, I'm going to make sure we take a trip. And uh, when you go, there's a section of the, the, they had walls around the city, right? And there's a section of the wall from Hezekiah's day that you can still see. They know it's from Hezekiah's day. You can stand on this little area and look down, and these are, you know, they've dug it up, and here's the section of the wall. And I always envision standing right there thinking hun- thousands and thousands. All I can see is the Assyrians here, and they've just murdered and killed all these other people and taken them into captivity, and now they're here for me. 
and Hezekiah prays, and an angel of the Lord goes out and wipes him out. It's, 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 uh, it's powerful. Uh, what it reminds me of is, oh wait, God's sovereignty, right? He's praying to the God who's in control. He's praying to the God who's good and who's wise and who's going to be faithful to his promises. And I wonder if we have a God who answers prayers. I wonder if you have a God who controls circumstances and answers prayers. Um, one of the most basic things that I would very much encourage you to do that's helped me and my wife personally in our prayer life is to have a prayer journal. Uh, a prayer journal does a couple things. Number one, it keeps you focused on task when you're praying. Uh, and I'm just saying writing out your prayer request, writing out what you're thankful for maybe, having it ongoing, it, it keeps you really focused when you're praying. But on top of that, it gives you a record of God's faithfulness. Uh, I, I, I thought of um, one of our heroes, George Mueller, who, was, uh, who lived in England, and he had documented, he had recorded his prayers, and he had documented, I, I read this again in uh, Dr. Whitney's Praying the Bible, he mentions this, that Mueller had over 50,000 specific recorded answers to prayers in his journals. 30,000 of which, he said, were answered in the same day or the same hour that he prayed them. Think of it. That's 500 definite answers to prayer each year, more than one per day, every single day, for 60 years. And God funneled over half a billion dollars in today, today's dollars through his hands in answer to prayer. So I want to motivate you to your prayer life. Talk to God. Trust him. Ask him, ask him for what's on your heart and talk to him about the needs in your life and then in the church. And let's record it. Let's see God's faithfulness. If, you, if, if that was me, I'd feel like, dude, I, like I'm on the top of the world. I got 50,000 answers to, to my prayers that God's listened to. Okay. So he prays. God answers immediately. Chapter 38. His faith is seen again. Hezekiah's faith. And he's sick. And God says to him in verse uh, 3, or Hezekiah prays in verse 3, help me, he, he knows he's sick. Verse 5, go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, always back to David, this is the one who has, I made the covenant with. I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and the city out of the, land, out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. Again, we see God's, he prayed and God was, fa God was faithful. And then the rest of that chapter, he's praising God. And then chapter 39. Oh, chapter 39. He gets an envoy from Babylon. And what happens is, it, it, chapter, verse 2 says, uh, they, he, Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, the whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Not a good idea. It's clear from the text that, number one, he took the opportunity to make himself look good, not God, and, it's, and, and that he should have seen through their flatteries uh, for the real reason they came and told them, he should have told them about the God who delivers. He should have told them about God, not showing them everything that he had done, all of that was in his kingdom. So Dr. Oswald said, why did the Babylonian exile occur? Because the nation, like Hezekiah, saw trust as a one-time affair rather than a way of life. They saw trust as a means of getting them out of a crisis rather than the lifelong expression of a covenantal relationship. 
Man, I love that, right? You're like, Hezekiah, why could you not have ended well? It honestly, it, it brought me to tears. And Hezekiah, you were a good king. Um, and Isaiah's parting words from this whole section, verse 8 of chapter 39 says, Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, uh, uh, sorry, right before that, Isaiah tells him, Okay, because of this, you're going into exile. Judah's going into exile. Hezekiah says to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. What? That's not good? How could you possibly say that that's good? Just self-preservation, there's peace and security in my days? That's not good. That's not what we want. (coughs) So we're left with open issues. Number one, Hezekiah was definitely not that child that was going to be born who was going to be the righteous king, right? So we still need, as Brian said Sunday night, we still need a perfect priest and a perfect king and a perfect prophet who's going to come. We also need hope for those who are going into exile. We know exile's coming. What kind of hope can we give those people? And we don't really understand exactly how this is going to happen, but we know the sinful people are having their sin ultimately taken away, that they are called ransomed and redeemed. Well, Isaiah's going to give us all that in clear detail next week and in the coming chapters. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we want to be people who trust in you and that that is seen in who we are and our desires and our our actions and our words. And, uh, and I just pray that you would use these women and their, and their families and in this ministry and in this church and in this community and the world um, to further your kingdom, to, to tell people about the king who, who's coming again and who already came and uh, accomplished the redemption and is going to one day consummate everything with perfect peace and full of joy. And I, I pray that that would be our message and even what's on our hearts. We, we thank you in your son's name. Amen. All right. We're done.